This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Sad day, sad day, sad day. Uh, and, and, you know, we certainly knew that this day was uh, coming. Uh, but the lead singer for the Tragically Hip, Gord Downey, uh, passed away last night, uh, 53 years of age, of course, suffering from brain cancer, uh, which been, had been announced in uh, May of 2016. Uh, of course, we all remember uh, the farewell tour and uh, that coincided with the band's 14th uh, album, Man, Machine, and Poem. Uh, also released his uh, own project, The Secret Path. Here's what Mike Drolet from Global News had to say. Gord Downey was born to command the stage. He started playing university bars in his hometown of Kingston with a band he formed with some friends called the Tragically Hip. They played bluesy rock and they were good, but it was Downey that drove the band with his kinetic performances and profoundly Canadian lyrics. Gord is one of the guys that made it okay to name check Canada. Up to Here was the band's first full album in 1989. Downey's lyrics were powerful, poetic, and over the years he wrote songs that would become Canadian anthems. And a lot of these songs just have had such incredible impact on Canadians. They always will. Downey's Canadiana resonated with the band's loyal following, too loyal at times. When the band tried to break through in the US or Europe, fans from Canada would invariably fill the audience. It seemed as though they didn't want to share his unique genius with the world. In 2015, he was home for Christmas in Kingston when he suffered a seizure. Walking down the street. The diagnosis was grim. He had brain cancer. Gord Downey's brain tumor is incurable. Surgery and chemotherapy shrunk the tumor, giving him time, but the side effects were significant. He began to forget the names of his children, his lyrics. He had to write things down on his hands, but it didn't stop him from making music. I'm a stranger. In 2016, he released his last solo project. The Secret Path was about a First Nations boy who died from hunger and exposure, trying to escape from a residential school in the 1960s. They wanted to change us. It's a remarkably dark and tragic story, and it hit an emotional chord in Downey. Sadly, it would be his last significant release. But that summer, he hit the road again with the hip. That tour would go from coast to coast, sold out arenas at every stop, fetting Downey and the band he helped put on the map. The last show of the tour, fittingly, was back in the city where it all began. This is a, a night where all of Canada is descending on Kingston. And that's where the The show was broadcast across the country. One in three Canadians watched it, or rather, Downey, strutting around in his shiny suit and fedora. Poet, singer, showman, and Canadian to the core. Mike Drolet, Global News. All right. uh, uh, 12.13, I'm Scott Thompson talking about the passing of uh, Gord Downey. Here's what the Prime Minister uh, had to say. We lost... One of the very best of us this morning. Uh, Gord was my friend, but Gord was everyone's friend. It's who we were. Our buddy Gord, who loved this country with everything he had, and not just loved it in a nebulous, oh, I love Canada way. He loved every hidden corner, every story, every aspect of this country that he celebrated his whole life. And he wanted to make it better. He knew as great as we were, we needed to be better than we are. And that's why his last years were devoted to Cheney Wedjack and to to reconciliation. This is something that I've certainly drawn inspiration and strength from. Uh, And we (laughs) we are less as a country without Gord Downey in it. Uh, and it, we all knew it was coming, but we hoped it wasn't. And uh, I thought I was going to make it through this, but I'm not. It hurts. 
All right, there you have it. Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau speaking on the passing of Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip. Let's bring in Graham Rockingham, music critic for your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there and at thespec.com. He's with us now. Graham, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, boy, hard to believe one in three saw that show. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's, that's up a, there. That's, that's like the, the the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964. That's that's pretty much the same numbers that uh, they got. Um, uh, and that, but that, of course, is U.S. But uh, that's the sort of um, to, to to Canada. That's what it was like. You know, uh, we were talking out in the hall, as lots of people are around their workplace or wherever today, about all of this. And, um, I, you know, I, I remember being in rock radio just as these guys were taken off. And um, I, I think what fascinated most it, it was he was an artist that wasn't afraid to name Canada. He wasn't afraid to, you know, I remember talking to other artists over the years and they you know, change the names of Canadian cities to American cities if they named them in their songs. And Gord didn't do that. Tom Wilson, another guy that's like that. Hamiltonians are like that. They're not yeah. scared to, to name their towns or their, or their places. I think he started that. Did he not, maybe? Well, or yeah, certainly made it mainstream. It's hard to say. He started it. But, but certainly uh, made it mainstream. Yeah, Lightfoot was doing it as well, but not as much. Uh, uh, but n- not with the hits, you know. And, um, and uh, he was certainly it, 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 it was almost every song yeah I mean yeah. that that's the thing yeah it was almost every song uh, Blue Rodeo does it as well but yeah. with the hip it was it, it was a point of pride and mm-hmm. and it's you know referencing the Maple Leafs or it, it was it was all about Canada they were quintessentially Canada and that's what why they were so important to us like it's funny uh, to hear the prime minister um, say what I I've heard several people to say today. Uh, it, it's like it, it's like losing a friend. Yeah. People who have never met him, yeah. people who haven't even seen him on con- in concert, but yeah. it, for the whole country, that's what it's like. It's like losing a friend. Uh, I just got off the phone with uh, Steve Mon of uh, the bass player of Teenage Head. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what he said, you know, and, uh, and I don't think he'd heard the prime minister speak yet. So uh, that's what it is to this country. And you know, it's funny, uh, uh, Steve, uh, is, uh, they go back with, uh, with the teenage head goes back to the 80s with uh, Tragically Hip. He recalled um, when Teenage Head was a much bigger band than the Tragically Hip, and and they were uh, playing Kingston, they were playing a Queen's University concert. Uh, the uh, the Head were the uh, were the uh, uh, the, the big act, the yeah. headliner, and yeah. uh, and this band they nobody heard of outside of Kingston came on before them, and they were Tragically Hip. The Head and the Hip, I the love head it. And the Hip, and, uh, <laughs> and he said, he said. We knew they were good, but they, you know, they were just you know, they bad, and they were playing surf guitar covers. They were playing Ventures yeah. songs. And, uh, well, remember uh, the first EP? Yeah, I mean, it was it, a lot very of much like that. And yeah. and the and the funny thing is, uh, uh, they they, you know, they never got close in terms of uh, uh, of friendships and things in terms of band. But the the hip always looked up to the head. They always. Uh, they were kind of like a uh, an uh, an idol to that band yeah. when they were starting out, and and Steve was recalling the time I think it was in 2007 when the Hip came here and uh, played uh, "Picture My Face," the Teenage Head single, uh, as an encore at Cops Coliseum. Mm. And Gord Lewis was uh, backstage for that show, and of course, and and uh, that's. That's uh, that's very cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Steve and Gord will never uh, never forget that moment. Uh, you could it uh, it it trended for a while on. Uh, I think there's YouTube uh, video of that uh, mm-hmm. available, but it's on uh, on uh, on the web. Yeah. Uh, how do you compare he to other Canadians in he, doing the same? Is is this the biggest thing for for Canadiana, or is this a generational thing? It, it it spans generations. Um, uh, 
if I, my 19-year-old loves the hip. Yeah. Um, the people my age love the hip. It's not just a generational thing. This is a very important thing. I mean, and, and of course it's, and of course it's the unfortunate circumstances behind Gord's death. The, the and that courageous tour. Mm. Um, that that's an extraordinary thing to come out and say, to tell all your fans, I'm dying, and then. But we're going to give you one more tour. You know what? Too, that's, a, that's an extraordinary thing. You know what? Too is that um, even when you saw the concert, the, the farewell tour. Yeah. Um, you, you, um, how do I put this? You, you just—it was almost like he was there. There he was. He's playing. They sound great. Not, oh, you know, not, maybe not yeah. as great as they had in in, in some situations. But it, and, and you just didn't want to believe that it was as bad as it was. No, and that's, and, and that's you, why it still was a shock today. And you it's, see the teleprompters and such, and um, I'm going to play a clip from, let's play this clip, uh, Luke, now from Peter Mansbridge. Right. And, and he's talking about writing yeah. his name on his hand, which really... Peter, it was Peter Mansbridge's name yeah, he wrote on his yeah. hand. Yeah, he, he, and he talks about how, you know, he... It, it's just come to the point yeah. where this is what he uh, he needs to do. I mean, he he, right. he could not remember even uh, you know. Uh, and they were golf buddies. No, they, they <laughs> is that right? I didn't know yes, that. Yes, yes, they played. Uh, uh, Gord was a good golfer, and uh, and they played a few rounds. Here's today. here's what he had to say uh, with Peter Mansbridge. My memories, which used to be my forte, and now I can't remember hardly anything I have. I have Peter written on my hand. I have things written, a few things written on my hands. Um, and I'd say that just to be upfront, because I might call you Doug. It's just because this is happening. It bugs me. Wow. And just even to hear him say, bugs me. Yeah. Because it, here was a man that would write down everything. Yeah. He, wrote, well, like, he, he, was, would, he uh, would just write he, lines at a time, would he not? He was an extraordinary writer. Yeah. He uh, uh, wrote like no other songwriter uh, I, I know of. Uh, at times, it would be like he was writing prose, mm. because he did, what he wrote didn't, didn't stick to your normal songwriting prose. He, he didn't really care about melody. <laughs> he, yeah. he would fit the melody. Yeah. He'd make the melody fit the words. Yeah. And you have to and, wonder what that's like at a band meeting. Well, that must be crazy. It was yeah, just, because like, it's like, how are we going to do this? How, how do you fit, like you said, square peg, round hole? Yeah, you just go along with it. And, uh, <laughs> See what happens. I mean, think of how well those guys knew each other. Yeah, these, these, yeah. Are, these are guys that went to high school together yeah. and stayed together all yeah. those years. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. No, that's chemistry. And, and, and that's the extraordinary thing about this band. I mean, uh, they were just a bunch of hosers from Kingston. You know, and uh, led by a poet, and it was such a strange thing. I mean, this is a uh, blues-based rock band uh, with surf guitar elements, mm. and uh, all very good musicians. Yeah. But but it was that that crazy uh, poet at the front of them that made them exceptional. And very exceptional. And every album was different. So every you, album was different. You yeah. wonder what would have become, what would have happened if, if you know, another 10, 20 years. Well, I, well, they, they would have kept on putting out an album every two years, I'm sure. And I, and I think there's probably we're going to see more. I think uh, they they were working on stuff to the end, on music to the end. And, uh, you know, we we do have, it, it, this is amazing, because we were on the phone, what, two weeks ago, talking about a new uh, Gord Downey solo That's album right. coming out. Yeah. That's still coming out uh, at the end of the month, uh, I think on October 27th. Um, and uh, and I, we've heard Gord talk about, yes, there's a good possibility there'll be more Tragically Hip music. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think it's over for fans, I, I think it's certainly over in terms of of uh, live performances. I mean, mm -hmm. couldn't couldn't be the no. hip. Maybe, maybe they might do something a tribute. There'll be trip all sorts of tributes. Maybe maybe the band will get into uh, do a, a special tribute with guest guest yeah. singers. But yeah. but you couldn't 
I mean, this isn't a situation like Journey where he could just, or... or no, no, the, sing, the lead man is way too unique yeah, for... Yeah, uh, for yeah. so we're never going to see that again. And, uh, uh, and, and he, was, he was such a great stage performer. I mean, yeah, he's a great he, front man. He was a great frontman. You never knew what he was going to do. Well, you yeah. sort of knew he was going to do. You knew he was going to have a little battle with his handkerchief and yeah. and, yeah. and knock and kick his microphone around the stage a lot. But uh, and what say do weird we, things to it. But what do we know about his family life? He, he was always very private about. He's that. very private. Uh, so I can't tell you. I, I think he was. You know, I we 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 were given a message from the family um, this morning. Um, this is a man uh, who said, especially in the last 18 months, he, he just wanted to hug and kiss people. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, there was a lot of that going on with his, uh, with his children and his, uh, and his wife. So, that's all, uh, you know, I've always respected him for uh, uh, being a private man, person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'd love to be able to just be able to call him up and get and, him, and, and one get of those you want. But I mean, I, I'm I'm glad it went this way. I I wouldn't want to be in a situation where we had media hanging around a hospital or, yeah. or waiting for the final moment, and that uh, as, as so often comes yeah. with with uh, celebrities. Um, so I'm glad it went this way. So. Uh... Do you think there will we will hear from other bandmates? Do you think that that uh, what's their future? I think they're. I mean, they've all had uh, uh, small solo projects going as well. So I think they're they're still going to be making music because that's what they do, um, and they're and they're, they're they're all very capable musicians, and and, and I don't think they're. I don't think they're they're in any way hurting no, financially. No. Yeah, and and you know what the, I hate to say, it, but what things like this do to to yeah. to sales yeah. is, is ridiculous. So yeah. I think they're taken care of, and as I said, there'll probably be another album too. So, but they they I think we'll be seeing some solo projects from all of them. Interesting, uh, and uh, I I. Uh, that's what they do. They can't. Musicians usually can't stop. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, they have to. Uh, they have to write songs. It's it's not as easy as uh, just putting your feet up and watching Netflix for the rest of your life. Graham Rockingham has been with us, music critic with your Hamilton Spectator, of course, uh, on the news. Gord Downey has passed away. Graham, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Rest in peace, Gord. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. President Trump claimed earlier this week that former presidents, including Barack Obama, did not do enough to honor the military dead, uh, boasting that he thought he had called everybody's uh, family of a soldier who had died. Uh, and then apparently uh, said to one soldier's wife, uh, he knew what he signed up for. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor. He is with us now. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, uh, any comments on the tragic loss of Gord Downey today? Yeah, no, obviously. It's a, it's a terrible loss. Even though all of us expected it, we knew as of, well, last year it was coming, it's still shocking no matter when it happens. Um, it's a loss of a a great Canadian musician, as I wrote on Twitter, but fortunately, his great music will last forever. Um, he was quintessentially Canadian. I know it's a stereotype people don't like to use, but this was a person who didn't seek or search out fame in other countries, including the United States, Europe, mm-hmm. etc. He basically wanted to be a homegrown talent, and his focus and his energies, including the many albums that they produced and the many songs that they wrote, were about Canada. And for that reason, it actually gave him a way to visit the entire country, to embrace the entire country, to speak to different people, to experience different things, and wrote about that in his music. You know, from great songs like uh, Grace to all the way to Bobby Cajun, he just was the epitome of what we would expect or hope a Canadian musician would be. And while it always is puzzling, and was always puzzling to people like myself, that he didn't want to be something else other than that. I think we should respect him for 
the great achievements he had for Canadian music and the fact that he wanted to ensure that Canadian music in general, via the Tragically Hip and his own songwriting, would always have a strong national hero at the front. He made it hip to be Canadian, didn't he? He did. Yeah, and that's really what he wanted. They really had no desire for anything else other than that. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not obviously coming on saying that's horrible. It's just interesting that in this day and age, and we're not talking about Downey's politics or what they were, etc. They were obviously very different than mine, but just the way musicians look at what their achievements in music or what they potentially hope they should be, it's always that I'd like to do well in my own home country and abroad, too. But that never really mattered to him. He wanted to ensure that the music he wrote, the albums he produced, the songs he discussed, and the things we chatted about were all about Canada. So if you want to have someone who really took national pride in this country, look no further than the late Gord Downey. Uh, Obviously, you've spent lots of time in political circles. How does Ottawa view things like this, Uh, arts, culture, things like this? Um, Obviously, the Prime Minister very emotional today. How does this resonate in in Ottawa when there's so many other things going on? Well, look, I mean, it's true. Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, was very emotional when he talked about it, but it's understandable in this case. You know, there are plenty of occasions when I've criticized Justin Trudeau's leadership, and, and trust me, I'll find many, 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 many more. This is not one of them. This was a national hero. This was someone he actually knew personally, and more importantly, Gore Downey was also a person who promoted Justin Trudeau's agenda very, very strongly at his concerts and during his public interviews with the CBC and others. So for him, there's a real emotional attachment, and it's completely understandable. But how does Ottawa operate on something like this? Well, the death of someone like a Gord Downey, who meant a lot to this country, I mean, their final concert that was broadcast live on the CBC, a third of our entire population actually watched it at Mm. one point or another, which is astonishing. It goes way beyond political lines. This is not a political issue. This is about someone who, you know, again, it has nothing to do with left-wing politics, right-wing politics. This is someone who really epitomized what it meant to be Canadian. So we all suffer in that loss. We all feel bad today in our own way. And for some of us, it's very hard to move forward and do things, at least for today, because you want to honor someone who meant something to the country and meant something to Canadians in general. So in Ottawa, I'm sure the mood is very somber right now. And understandably so. All right, let's move on to what's happening south of the border. Uh, President Trump, of course, uh, seemingly again to get put his foot in his mouth. Yeah. Um, he boasted uh, the other night on the news, uh, quote, I think I've called every family of someone who died, who's died. Right. How do you react to that statement? Well, let me put it to you this way. I don't know if he's if it's true or not. I hope he's being truthful. Um, it would be hard for me to believe that he would be able to catch absolutely everyone. I know, you know, all U.S. presidents, including ones you may, your listeners may or may not like from, say, well, more recent ones like George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, etc., they all, you know, in these sorts of times, it is an obligation of a president to call a soldier and a soldier's family, friends and loved ones, and speak to them and grieve with them and provide them with comfort because that's what a national leader, or in this case, a U.S. president, should do. Do I know for sure whether Donald Trump has called all of these people? No, and even he himself said, I believe so. So even he's admitting that there could have been one or two missed. But I don't know if it really even necessarily matters. It's not even something that he should have to justify in public or even in private to his advisors. Then why does he? Then why does he, Michael? Well, that's a whole separate issue itself, Scott. And that <laughs> All right, let's not waste time there. Go ahead. No, I mean, very bluntly, that deals with his own personal yeah. psyche, All right. his own personality. So who knows why he has to do some of these things. But, I mean, I think we can always agree that it's not necessary. It's just something he should be doing. What there about is- commenting on what Barack Obama did with this? And then bringing up, you know, you could ask General Kelly, did he get a call from Obama? I mean, my goodness. Like... Yeah, he's now making General Kelly feel bad just to get an insult in. I know, and it's very unfortunate because if anyone happened to watch about a week or two ago when General Kelly actually spoke in front of the media, he was this honest, decent, forthright, kind, you know, apologized to the media when he was critical of them. 
he's just a different personality than Donald Trump, which neither is good nor bad. It just means that he handles things in a very, very different fashion. He doesn't seek the spotlight, that being General Kelly, but he knows that as the chief of staff to the U.S. president, he's going to have to occasionally be in the spotlight from time to time. And no, it's a position that I don't think he wants to be in. And quite frankly, I don't think it's a position that anybody, a grieving parent, friend, family member, spouse, anyone would want to be in either. And it's not a contest. You know, it's not that, oh, I've called everyone and this is great. Look at me. Ha ha ha. It shouldn't be like that. It should be simply something that is just understood as being part of the duties and responsibilities of a national leader like a U.S. president. And it shouldn't matter who he called, how he called them, and, and whether the names of the people are actually listed. Again, I, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, it's really a conversation that we don't need to have in the public realm. Uh, yeah, isn't that the truth? Um, what about the, uh, the, the uh, allegations? Well, you know, how can we say, yeah. say allegations? It's a soldier's wife that said that, he, yeah. that Trump said, quote, he knew what he signed up for. I mean, it, yeah. it's just, my goodness, how do, you, how do you react to this? Well, first we have to be careful. Um, that is what is she, that's what she and her family are saying. Yeah. So we have to take it from that angle. Donald Trump has already come out and denied that he said it. So you have two things playing at once. So whether you like Trump or hate Trump, you'll have your own point of view as to whether it was said or not. Let's play devil's advocate and say that he did say it. Even if you think that it's right, to say that. And sure, when you sign up to join the U.S. Army or to join the military forces, it's true. You know what's involved, you know the risk that you're going to take, and you know the possibilities that you could encounter. There's no doubt of it. But if he did say it, and again, Scott, I have no way of knowing whether he did or not. I don't think we'll ever know, quite frankly. I don't know why he would bother to say something like that. Yeah. Not, not only is it unnecessary, it's not the time or place or area, quite frankly, to even have this discussion. All you're supposed to do as a national leader is comfort that individual, his family, her family, etc., and try to show some compassion, some empathy. And I know a lot of people will say, well, Donald Trump doesn't really show all that much of it. Look what his record so far has been. And that's another, you know, that's another issue for another time. But I hope to God, quite frankly, that he didn't say this or anything like this. Because I think it's rather embarrassing if he did. My hope is that it was just, you know, that he said it in a different fashion or that he meant it in a different way, sort of saying, you know, look, I understand that, you know, he knew what he was getting getting in for yeah. when he signed it or signed up for it. But in the end, you know, I still feel badly for you. I hope that's the way it was said. It's still wrong, and I wouldn't have done it myself, and I don't think most people would have. But if it was said the way that the... The, the fallen soldier's family says it was, that's horrifying. Uh, give us a little bit of a progress report here, Michael. Uh, last week it was Tillerson, uh, earlier on in the week Tillerson, uh, and, and you know, who said what, and, and, yeah. and this sort of thing, and the whole relationship between uh, the two of them. Uh, some have even pointed out that... Uh, that Tillerson, you know, making references to being castrated by Trump. What's the yeah. relationship like here now? You know, again, you never know what's in people's minds, so you just have to sort of look at it as an outsider. I think that probably Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump have probably reached a point where they can get past it. These are two very strong-willed men in their own way, two domineering personalities, two type A males, whatever you want to call them. They're very similar in that fashion, with one major difference. And you can see it in the way that they handle things publicly. When Rex Tillerson goes out in public, no matter what he's like in private, you see one type of person. It's a person who is businesslike, straightforward, and a person who understands the responsibilities of the job he has, which is currently Secretary of State. Donald Trump is very, very different. Whether you like him or hate him, I think everyone will admit he is unfiltered. He just says what he wants at the time, what he feels like, and he basically just governs by his gut. He doesn't really follow standard protocol you would expect during an interview, during a discussion, or even just talking to the media offhand. For that reason, Tillerson and Trump have probably had their words. I mean, Tillerson acknowledged the CNN's Jake Trapper uh, over the weekend last week, 
that they have an open and frank relationship. I'm sure they had some words. I'm sure they had some discussions, but they have probably moved past it because, as Mr. Tillerson has said now quite a few times, he has no intention of leaving the job. He never planned to. He never wanted to. He's quite happy where he is, and he feels that it's an honor to be the Secretary of State, which he's right. It is. So I think they found a way to get past this. But were words said, were comments made, you know, did they discuss their various IQ tests and all this other nonsense? I hope it wasn't too, too bad. But certainly behind closed doors, lots of conversations and lots of four-letter words are often said in politics. You don't have to, to be there to know it. Let's just hope they were kept to a minimum and they found a way to move past it. But so far, I think they have. Uh, what about progress? Is he getting stuff done? Is there anything at this point that we can gauge, or is it still too early? Trump? Yeah. Um, uh, Trump has certainly proposed a lot of things. I mean, his first 100 days, he proposed a lot of legislation. He's had trouble getting a lot of it through. I mean, his travel ban, as you probably heard, was actually blocked for the third time, which yeah. almost means that basically this is done with. Obamacare has come to a point where they're just trying to create any sort of a thing to get rid of it instead of letting it die, which Trump has said over and over again is the right strategy for the GOP, the Republican Party, to follow. I think he's had a lot of trouble, not in terms of proposing things. He's certainly been an active president in terms of his proposals. But getting legislation through in a very polarized political environment with a very polarizing president, again, whether you like, love him or hate him, that's what he is, has made it very, very difficult for him to basically run a day-to-day operation in the White House that one could call successful. I would not call it a failure by any means. I think it's just basically a huge, huge struggle. And this may define the Trump presidency, whether it goes through one term or two terms. This may be the way it is that he just puts out things. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of yelling and screaming, including from fellow Republicans as well, that certain pieces of legislation are blocked. They try to come up with a compromise. It doesn't work perfectly. And on and on it goes. That's not the best analysis you can have for the United States. And certainly, I'm not going to say that he hasn't done anything. I mean, Neil Gorsuch was elected to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was one of his cherry picks. And I think that will be a a legacy project that he'll remember. He certainly is talking tough with North Korea, which a lot of people want, although they're not quite sure where it's going to end up. The Iran nuclear deal certainly seems like it's going to be a foregone conclusion, and unfortunately, NAFTA might be too. So there are certainly things that Donald Trump has done, whether you're happy with them or not happy with them, but whether we call this a successful presidency or not, it is way, way too early at this stage to tell. I think this is a discussion when you sort of reach the halfway mark. How do the midterm elections go for him next year? How is he able to handle things? Is he able to build any bridges with Democrats and Republicans, or does he just keep burning them, as he has been doing quite frequently during his presidency? That's a, that's a key part of the strategy, and it's a key part of any sort of a re-election process that Donald Trump wishes to have, because he is still a viable political candidate in spite of all the things and all the machinations that we've seen. But whether he's been successful or a failure, I know some people, especially on the left, his political opponents, want to already declare that now. It is way too early for me to say, I think we need to have a much bigger record, more proven actions, and more pieces of legislation going through before we can say that. Uh, Obviously, on the news last night, watching the three uh, negotiators of uh, NAFTA hanging their heads kind of low. Christia Freeland talking about there seems to be a win-at-all-cost mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that the case with this administration, that a a win-win-win, meaning for all three countries, a solution that way uh, is impossible? It's I win and no one else does. Does Does there always have to be a loser in... Uh, Donald Trump's game. Can all well, three can all three win? I don't know if all three can win. When you renegotiate something like a trade deal, there's always one component that's not going to be either happy or feel that it's received the short end of the stick, so to speak. I don't think there's any way to avoid that. I, I, as, although there's many things I disagree with Krista Freeland in or on, I think she's actually right in this case that it sort of has to become a win-win situation or a win-win-win situation for everyone, or it'll be deemed a failure. 
And I think that's where the basic problem comes into play and why everyone sort of has a hangdog look, as you sort of alluded to, is because as three rounds of this trade talks have gone through for NAFTA, and as we're going to enter a fourth, and the clock is ticking in terms of year's end, we are no further closer to signing a new, newly revised NAFTA agreement than we were before. And if anything, the language that we're hearing is getting worse and worse. I mean, the 220% tariff levied on Bombardier was a complete mess. Trump has now decided to go after supply management in Canada, which, by the way, I think is actually a good thing. I dislike it immensely. But it's interesting that it came in just at the tail end to sort of add another layer of, shall we say, problems or discussions during these talks, and it's going to make it more and more difficult for anything to happen. Look, Donald Trump has already alluded to the fact publicly that he said that this deal may not be signed. And he said in the end, and I'm just paraphrasing, you know, Canada will be fine, the United States will be fine, we'll find ways to work together, everybody will be hunky-dory, so to speak. But we may or may not be, because international trade deals like NAFTA are part of the global marketplace. This is the way countries operate today. And even though I know there's a lot of frustration at things like the European Union, as we're seeing today, or these days, especially with the uh, Britain about to move out of it within a couple of years, I agree that obviously things are changing and the way that countries, people, politicians, institutions are looking at trade, including trade liberalization and enhancing trade, are becoming very, very different. But yes, when it comes to NAFTA, I think that there's a lot of depression now simply because they realize that this trade agreement, which has been which was enacted in 1990 or roughly 27 years ago, is looking at its weakest point than it's ever been. And it really the pulse, you can barely hear it at this Mm. stage. So if it's hanging by a thread, this is going to change a lot of things to the way the American economy operates, the Canadian economy, the Mexican, Mexican economy and North America as a whole. It's not a good thing. It's not something I favor. But right now, I would say that if, if push came to shove, I think NAFTA is in huge, huge trouble today. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Thank you, Michael. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So every year uh, around this time, uh, despite the temperatures, uh, you know, thoughts start to turn to Halloween. I was I drove by the Pertinos in Maine and Dundurn uh, the other day. I saw they had the giant pumpkins there. It's like I got to get in and get me a giant pumpkin before they go, and uh, and managed to do that. Brought two home already, sitting out there on the front stoop. And you know, I'm asking uh, Junior what he's going to wear. What you, uh, my oldest is a little too old now. She opted last year to make like a uh, horrific operating room in the garage and sort of had a thing that pretty much guaranteed that every kid was too scared to even come up the driveway to get some candy. Uh, She's not into that this year. I don't know what she's going to do. My son, um, he wants to go out as the clown from It, which he is not allowed to do because, well, certainly at school anyway, because there's no clowns allowed at his school. Yes, whatever happened to the life of the clown? The clown has been tarnished now since all of these horror movies. It no different. Uh, every year there tends to be a few Halloween costumes that offend people. Some uh, and are greatly offensive. Uh, and we end up with this discussion. Let's bring in Gary Dierenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, to talk about all of this. Gary, thank you for taking the time to join us today. <laughs> you know, I, you know, you you always get these uh, wacky costumes at this time of the year that are uh, maybe maybe centered around the news cycle or what have you. Yeah. But I don't know. Uh, how do you come up with a costume for Anne Frank or Harvey Weinstein? Like, honestly. Um, like, who thinks of this stuff? Like, you know, like, oh, gee, there's Anne Frank at my door. Yeah. So you you got to have quite a vivid imagination. And how do you just, like, how do you explain I'm Harvey Weinstein? Like, how do kids even understand that? Yeah. And why would you want to promote him in any way, shape, or form to begin with? Yeah. Halloween's such a, um, it's such a challenging holiday. Um, because it forces us to look at uh, stereotypes, and it forces us to consider ethnicity, uh, culture, uh, gender, 
um, all these things. And, and the, you know, the problem is um, we've got to manage not being offensive to anyone. Does it have to be all of that, or is it just the world we live in now where we have to be extra sensitive to everything? You know, here, here's the thing. I, I, I was at a conference in Philadelphia over the weekend, and as part of that conference, we had um, a presentation to help us be more aware of white male privilege and of some of the issues faced by um, uh, African Americans, First Nations, uh, and other um, minorities. And what, what you come to, to realize is there is a pecking order in society. And if you're the big fish at the top of that pecking order, you don't know the trials and tribulations faced by the smaller fish below. When I went out Sunday morning for a walk uh, early in Philadelphia, I didn't think twice about my safety. But I, I harked back to the, to the presentation that I was in thinking, well, wait a minute, if I was a woman, I wouldn't be taking this walk. If I was a colored woman, I may, you know, an uh, African-American woman, I may even less be taking this, and, and on and on and on. So when we talk about this sensitivity, very often, Scott, it's from the perspective of the biggest fish, not the smaller fish. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we stop looking top down and start looking bottom up, then we have a better sense of how offensive we may inadvertently be. How, why does this seem to be an issue every year? Do we always every year need a lesson in, um, in morality, in taste, in common sense? <laughs> Look south of the border. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. You know, some have accused me of being naive, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, naivety is a beautiful thing. Uh, so, yeah, we do need these lessons every year. Uh, there's always a new crop of people who may not have been exposed to some of these issues. Not everyone listens to the Scott Thompson show. I don't know why they don't, Scott. Me neither. Right. Well, let's so, talk about... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so we do need to revisit these things all the time. We have a wide, broad, deep society, and um, many folks are fixed in their points of view and attitudes, um, where those points of view and attitudes... Um, may not um, may still hold prejudice, and it's not that they're bad people. No. Let's differentiate. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about bad people. We're talking about the way we're socialized and how we look from our point of view, having been socialized that way. And we we don't even recognize this stuff. I, can I? I'll talk personally. I'm Jewish. I was born in Toronto, and and I was brought up in the Jewish part of town. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bathurst and Wilson. Post-World War II, you got to know that if you grew up in that neighborhood, you grew up not trusting, liking uh, Germans, hmm. Muslims, hmm. Palestinians. No one told me not to like these people. They didn't say, hey, see that person, don't like it. It was built into the social fabric to be afraid of them. And you grow up, and you know, ho hopefully we grow up, and we gain a more worldly view where we can self-reflect and realize, what, you know, what do we call the person who will write off whole groups of other people on the basis of ethnicity, faith, or culture? That's, that's prejudice. And there I am in my mid-20s, mid to late 20s, realizing for the first time that I have these inherent prejudices, biases. And it's only then that I can take myself out of that pond and say, you know, I, sh I should be meeting people who are German or Muslim or Palestinian. And when you do, you realize they put their pants on one leg at a time. Hmm. They concern themselves about the well-being of their families and children. Uh, Was it difficult for you to get to that place? And what did other members of the family think of that? Um, I, I was kind of lucky because I, had, I came from a liberal, progressive thinking, inclusive thinking family. So it wasn't as big a stretch. The, 
the issue for me personally was confronting myself about that, recognizing it, and, and here's the big part, owning it. Yeah. You know, these, we just went through the Me Too. Yep. So there you are on Facebook, and every woman, every woman is clicking Me Too. And so, as a, a, again, as a white male, I look at that and I say, I'm a perpetrator. I've hurt women. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not a rapist. I'm mm-hmm. not out to intentionally hurt. Mm-hmm. But uh, have I ever catcalled when I was a younger person growing up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have I ever tried to get a kiss where maybe I shouldn't get a kiss? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, have I ever said an off-color joke? Uh, yeah. And then I think, has that ever been done to me as a white male? Not, not too frequently. Not too frequently. So we're coming to realize that if you're on the downline of, of those, the big fish, smaller fish, smaller fish, life gets a lot more complex, a lot more scary, and with a lot less privilege. Halloween brings all this out. Well, it's like, you know, Halloween, you have a license to shock, which is great, which is fine. It's fun, um, you, know, you know, when done in the, in, in the right context. But it seems that shock has gone from shock to offend. The only way yeah. to truly shock is if you offend somebody. Yeah, shock, offend, and shame. Yeah, yeah. And shame people. And, you know, Halloween, you know, my, I grew up. I don't know, I was a horse, I was a hobo, I was, you know, a spinning top. Uh, you know, a hobo these days would be seen as... I was the youngest of three kids, so I was whatever I fit into that the others <laughs> grew out of. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, I'm the youngest of three kids too, and it was the same story. But now we want to have a greater sensitivity, because we don't want to shame, mock, or embarrass those folks whose culture, ethnicity, or station in life uh, um, socioeconomic status might be different than our own. We, hopefully as a society, we are more attuned to the impact of our behavior upon others uh, and their experience of our behavior. Uh, that being said, uh, some will listen to this conversation and say, whoa, slow down, slow down, slow down. Yeah. Uh, what, you know, it, it seems to be one extreme uh, to the other. Uh, you know, nobody, I don't think everybody, I don't think anybody here is, is promoting the use of an Anne Frank or Harvey Weinstein uh, costume. On the other hand, how do we balance this? How do we, how do we still get the fun out of the day or night or whatever you want to call it, occasion for those who want to celebrate it without it being offensive? And, um, again, it, you know, you look at this stuff, is it, you know, it's not even a religious connotation. Well, I guess it is with Anne Frank, but is it really? I mean, it, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, the story of the girl herself. Yeah, uh, but when you look at the Obviously, it's religious costume, overtones. Yeah, yeah. It shows a trendy young gal. I know, it just doesn't it, look, It yeah. doesn't depict no. the horror yeah. of having lived, you know, in, a, in an attic. Mm. Attic for years. Mm-hmm. You know, all I can think of is the stat. All, all I can think of is the statue in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, that uh, of Anne Frank. I mean, it just, it just, uh, I just don't see where this is coming from. I don't see anything good about this. Yeah, I, uh, there, there you go. So you know, people can get creative. Be your favorite cartoon character or a sci-fi figure. There are so many other things that we can uh, adorn ourselves in costume with that are non-offensive, that can celebrate uh, uh, well-being or fun or fantasy without falling into um, offense. Yeah, use just a little thought, that's all. It takes a little, uh, takes a little bit more thought. Uh, what about no clowns? My kid's school, no clowns, Gary. Uh, you got me there. I, I didn't know that, and I'd have to hear Zombies it. are okay, but clowns are off. Apparently they scare kids. <laughs> And you know, and and whoever first in a horror movie took a clown and made it a killer or a terrible character, I mean, they're responsible for all of this because that's what started the whole trend. Isn't that a riot? So, so I didn't know about clowns being offensive, but I guess to some kids it is so scary that uh, you know we want them all to get through unscathed. 
Yet a zombie with an axe to the head is fine, I guess. Isn't that weird? Because culturally, we have so normalized that on television. Yeah. That, that somehow or other, that's offensive, or non-offensive. But the other piece is, it really isn't um, disparaging any particular minority group because this is a fantasy character. Good point. But so is a clown. I agree. I, digra- I digress. All right, I got to throw this by you before we get out of here. A church in Newfoundland has uh, sparked debate uh, over modernization of the collection plate. The church has, br- the church has brought in a wireless debit machine uh, as well. I don't think it's instead of a collection plate. It's as well as a collection plate. Right. And I believe it is called a giving terminal. So I really looked into this, and I went to the Facebook page where, where that, um, you know, you, you go into any store and you want to purchase something and you want to swipe your card. It's just a card reader. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to the Facebook page where this was originally posted, and wow, are there um, anything but church-like posts <laughs> arguing about that? Oh, no, it's bringing out the worst in us. It, it, uh, Scott, it's... it's um, it's pretty scary. At the end of the day, um, this is not the first church to use this device. I think it's the first church where somehow or other it's hit the media. And all it is doing is offering options for those who want to donate to be able to donate. It's a sign of the times. It's everywhere. That's it. That's it. But somehow or other, um, those who have an axe to grind with the church are saying, you know, it's just a money grab, we don't like the church, why don't they concentrate on on the good deeds? And as you go through the Facebook posts, for me, the more reasonable ones are explaining that, you know, it still costs money to run a church, and this is one of the forms of uh, revenue uh, to help maintain uh, the church. And it's totally voluntary. And, you know, I was reading farther into this article. They made it sound like it was going around like the basket of the plate was going around. And it's not that case at all. It's sitting in the church office. And if you want to use it because you, you know, forgot your uh, money or what have you, you can do it this way. And you know what? I'm sure once the the congregation realizes the church has it, it'll probably get more use than the plate does. Yeah, honestly. So this is one of those things where I think it's been whipped up by the media. It's much ado about nothing. Churches still need to generate uh, some form of revenue in order to put the lights on and the heat on and uh, deliver the services that they deliver. Uh, People have forever been donating to their church. This is just another... Uh, electronic uh, way in which people can donate. All right, let me ask you one more question before we're out of here uh, on a newsworthy uh, issue. Obviously, lead singer for the Tragically Hip, Gord Downey, has passed away. Isn't that sad? Very sad. And, you know, of course, in the last year and such, when we learned of his illness and the concert and and such, uh, there seems to be a, a little bit of a funk in the country today. Talk about that. How do you explain that? Is it good? Is it bad? You know, there should be a funk. This is a great Canadian. Um, whether or not you like the tragically hip and the music per se, here is a fellow that picked up the issue of our indigenous people. And uh, he stood with the indigenous people to bring to our uh, collective consciousness the plight faced by them through the tragic life of one little boy. He did it pictorially and in music, artistically and wonderfully. This is a man with no axe to grind, but information to share and love to share. How can we not pass uh, mourn his passing? Well said. Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. Gary, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.